If you have your Bibles, please turn to Daniel chapter 7. We'll be reading a prophecy that was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that was given to the prophet Daniel in the 6th century B.C. This prophecy in Daniel 7 is designed by God for the very purpose of displaying the glory of God and to pull us towards displaying the glory of God. Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and the visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote them down, the dream, and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. They had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And so the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Praise be to our God in heaven who speaks these words and tells us of what is to come as he displays his glory over victory over the enemy. 
Daniel 7 is known as apocalyptic revelation. Like, oh, these big words. All it means that this is prophecy about the end of human history in this current and present age. When you're reading this, this genre of literature in the Bible, it's filled with a lot of mysterious images that, if we're honest, can at times cause anxiety or, or fear of, of the future, especially if the one reading is unfamiliar with this, this type of scripture. But the purpose of prophecy, particularly this type of, of prophecy, talks about the end times or apocalyptic prophecy, the purpose is not to scare us. The purpose is not to make us uneasy or anxious about the future. It's not like we have to worry about aliens or evil machines or asteroids or viruses or nuclear holocaust to end the world. I know that's the stuff of movies today, but that's not in the Bible. That's not what's going to end the world. Prophecies like Daniel 7 are designed by God to encourage, that's its purpose, to encourage the people of God to greater love and devotion to Jesus. It's meant to encourage us to keep following him because we have hope. Hope is not lost. Our ultimate purpose and as humans our ultimate end is here powerfully and, and just beautifully described. This text here is pointing to Messiah. It's pointing to Jesus. And so in this series, we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? Well, according to Daniel 7, Jesus is the Son of Man. That's what it says here in verses 13 and 14, describing the Son of Man. Of man, which, if you remember, was Jesus' most used, his favorite description of himself. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even John, he calls himself the Son of Man. Over 60 times he uses that description for himself. So it's a very prominent biblical theme. And where did Jesus get that phrase, Son of Man? He got it from here, Daniel chapter 7 a prophecy given about 600 years before Jesus was born. So you're wondering, okay, so Jesus is the Son of Man. Maybe you're thinking, well, what does that actually mean? And how does it impact my life today? Well, I can assure you of this, I promise, that seeing the glory of Jesus is relevant, always relevant. And it will apply to our lives. Let's see how by beginning to understand who these four beasts are. And so it says that they come out of the sea. Now, in the ancient world, when you, when you read about the sea, it's a symbol of, of chaos and of rebellion against God. And so these beasts are instruments of chaos. They're instruments of rebellion which is why you see them destroying the people of God. And they want to de devour and, and trample underfoot. And so these four beasts are all about destruction and death. 
So the first one that Daniel sees in this vision, it says it's kind of like a lion, but it has wings of an eagle on its back. And the second beast is described as being like a bear, but it says it's raised up on one side. And so picture like, I don't know, like a possessed Quasimodo, you know, like a, like a Notre Dame, like he's hunched off onto one side and he has his mouth is full of ribs. So he just finished eating someone, and so the ribs are still in his mouth. And then the third beast is described as a four-headed, four-winged leopard. So it's these fantastic beings, but they're evil and dark and ominous and destroying and killing. And then there's a fourth beast that's the most horrifying of all of them. And so much so that Daniel in this vision he can't even find a comparison point. On the first three, he, he can say, oh, it looks kind of like a bear, or kind of like a leopard with wings, and kind of like a lion. But this fourth thing, he's like, I got nothing. I don't know what this looks like. It looks like no earthly creature or animal. It's just a beast. And he describes this fourth one as being different. And he says that it's very powerful, very, very strong, he says. He says that it has large iron teeth and that he's devouring and that he's crushing and trampling under his feet. And he says he has ten horns, and, and so a horn is a symbol of power. And so this is a very powerful beast. And while Daniel was in this, like, horrifying awe of these horns, so he, he like, can't look away like a moth to fire. He's just in awe of staring at these horns, and then just then, out of his head, comes out another horn that uproots three others, and this other horn that comes up seems to have eyes and a mouth, and it's talking. Well, that's just gross, like a horn coming out from the head of a monster, and then it says that it's speaking arrogantly and great things. So you have this vision of a trash-talking horn on top of a monster. This is the Bible. And then verse 15 says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. <laughs> really? He says, my spirit was anxious. He says, and, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Really? I mean, it's like, who wouldn't be alarmed or anxious looking at these beasts? I mean, this is Daniel. Remember, he probably thought to himself, I was better off in the lion's den. They're hanging out with and seeing visions of these horrifying beasts. Now, he doesn't know what it means. And so he, in, in this vision, remember, this is a, a courtroom. So there's thousands there, and you have thrones, and you have the Ancient of Days, who is God himself, and he's described with human-like characteristics. You know, God is spirit, but he's described here with what's called anthropomorphic, so he is, he is given human characteristics so that we can understand what he is like, and so he's being described with these human-like characteristics as having white hair and, and, and sitting on these thrones of fire, and these beasts are basically on trial. And so this is a cosmic courtroom where these beasts are on trial, and this is judgment for them. And Daniel asks this, 
this angelic figure that's undefined. He says, well, what does this mean? In verse 17, he answers the meaning of the beast. So this is so helpful when the Bible tells us what the Bible means. Scripture must interpret Scripture. This is critical to understanding how to interpret, how to understand the Bible. We can't make mean what we want. The Scripture must be interpreted in its context. Verse 17 tells us what these beasts mean. And he says, these four great beasts are, okay, so here's what they are. He says, they are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. And so he is telling Daniel, and by extension us, God's people of all time, he's saying these four beasts are not literal. So don't be scared. They're not literal. They're figurative. They are a metaphor. They're symbolic. So in this vision, these four beasts represent, it says, four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And so again, not literal beasts. These are metaphors that represent kings, authorities. They represent governments that are in human history, that are in control of our world. And so what this vision basically is saying is that our world is being run by a succession of hideous monsters that goes from bad to worse and more terrifying with each successive nation, kingdom, empire, government. It's getting worse. And now, some commentators argue that they know exactly which four human kingdoms these beasts represent. And they, they will argue, saying, oh, well, these four beasts represent the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian, and the Greek, and the Roman Empire. And, and they, they try to argue how they know exactly and why these four beasts represent those ancient human kingdoms. Now, I don't agree with that, and I'm going to tell you why I disagree with that interpretation. Two, two problems with trying to pin down and say, I know exactly which four kingdoms these represent. The first problem is the Bible doesn't say that. It's just that simple. The Bible doesn't say, oh, this represents Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. It doesn't say that. And so I want to be very careful when it's for Scripture is what does the Bible say? Don't read into it. What he says here is that it is representing human kingdoms. That much is said, but doesn't say exactly which ones. Here's the other problem that I see with, with exactly which four kingdoms these are. The problem is if you define these beasts by these four ancient empires, the, the last one being Rome, which was still 2,000 years ago. If you're saying that these four beasts represent these ancient human empires, what happens to us in a very subtle way is we begin to think that things used to be dark back then. But today, we're more civilized. We're more enlightened. We're, we're a modern and a more progressive and educated and so it's not like that anymore. It's a problem to think that way. Because the point here of Daniel 7 is showing us how each 
of these successive kingdoms is more and more opposed to God and his purposes. So the truth is that things today are not less beastly, if you will, than they were in the ancient world. We think, oh, there were just bloodthirsty, evil people in the ancient world, and these beasts represent that. Well, the truth is, if we look at just our last century, we see Adolf Hitler with gas chambers and concentration camps. We see in this last century the killing fields of Cambodia and Rwanda. In this century, today, 21st century, 2017, we see believers in Jesus that are being persecuted and are being killed in the very region that you and I live in today. Today, we see great persecution and martyrdom. More martyrs today in the last hundred years than the past 20 centuries combined of Christian history. The reality is that things today are just as dark and just as beastly as they were in the ancient world. This is happening today. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, principalities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it is not against flesh and blood, but there is an evil spirit that is at work. The great beast, Satan himself, and his kingdom of darkness is at work in the sons of disobedience today. The, the continual presence of beasts in our world should not surprise us. Every single human manifestation of evil, every time that you see human evil, it is a reflection of the work of the great dragon, that serpent of old. But there is hope. There is hope because our God is sovereign. He's in complete control of all of human history, and that includes the details of your life within history. And nothing can happen, nothing, nothing can happen apart from the sovereign hand of God actively doing or allowing by secondary means. He is sovereign over every event, even the smallest detail in human history. And he is moving history to its appointed time. That's what we're seeing in this vision. Each successive kingdom of man that behind the scenes you see the kingdom of darkness that's at work opposing God. And yet there is hope because God is at work and is moving history to its appointed end, which is the display of the glory of the Son of Man. That is where history is moving. With all of this evil that is opposing God, God is still in control. The world belongs to him. He has not forgotten. He is not asleep in heaven. And, and the world is running amok. It's not like that. He is active, and he knows what he is doing, and the enemy is limited, and as we'll see, he is defeated. 
And so let me give you three truths about the Son of Man and where history is going, where your life is going. Three truths about the Son of Man. The first one, as the Son of Man, Jesus will ultimately and finally, number one, crush the enemy. He will crush the head of the serpent. He is the seed. He is the king. He is the Son of Man. Yes, today Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yes, that is true. And yes, in this current fallen world, God does allow the enemy to persecute his people. That is happening today. And he does trouble us. He does tempt us. He does harass us. He does. We see the work of the beast all around us. When you see bloodthirsty terrorists that blow up trains and buses and, and drive trucks into crowds of people and crash planes into buildings, that is the agenda of the beast. When you see dictators that exploit developing countries, countries that are honestly trying to develop, they're trying to modernize and have a, a good economy and be part of the, the global economy, and you have dictators that come in and exploit and keep the country poor, and they're corrupted, and they get rich, and the whole country is starving. That is the agenda of the beast. When you see AIDS and poverty, and you see children that are starving, and you see cancer, human trafficking, abuse, battered women, that's the beast's agenda. See, but Satan is... And his work is so much more subtle than just all of those, quote, big things. It's in the small, too. It's in Abu Dhabi, where you have some people that have come here just to work hard. They came here, they left their home and their family, and they came here to work hard. And they're overworked, underpaid, abused, and it's oftentimes it's just slavery. That is a mark of the beast. When, when you have people that work hard for their company and then they're discarded just like yesterday's newspaper because the company has a new direction and they're no longer needed. That's beastly. That's not Christ-like. But it comes home even more and it's even more personal than that. When you have a mom who's at home, and she's taking care of her small children. And, man, she's tired. Amen, moms? Small children? Tired? And you feel sometimes like, man, it's just pointless. Like one more diaper, one more pile of dishes. And you feel like your life is not going anywhere, and you feel small, and you feel like your life is not worth all that much. That is antichrist. That is against Jesus, anti, against Jesus, against the purposes of God. That is the work of Satan that would rob a mother of the joy and dignity and eternal purpose and value of raising children and leading them to know the king. Oh my goodness, that is eternal. And yet, and yet Satan comes and tempts and lies and robs us of vitality. 
this, it, and so it hits home. This battle comes to our daily lives in our daily failures, in our struggles, in our brokenness, our disappointments, in our daily living. We have to battle against the enemy, and it's a battle to believe that the victory of Jesus is our victory. His victory is our victory. This is the truth, is that he is defeated and that we are no longer enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. And so our Savior said, in this world you will have tribulation. But then what did he say? Take heart. I have overcome the world. He has overcome the prince of this world who will not rule for much longer. We just read in Daniel 7 verses 11 and 12, as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire, pointing to Revelation, the end times when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. The message of Daniel 7 is that in this life, there will always be darkness until the Son of Man returns and vanquishes the enemy, crushes the enemy. And on that day, as we just read here in this cosmic courtroom, that great beast, Satan, will be brought to justice. He will stand before the throne of God and he will answer for his crimes against humanity and he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Our enemy is defeated. He's defeated in your life. You don't have to walk enslaved to him. You have been set free. You've been set free. You believe this. You've been set free. I know you have. How do I know you have? Because the Bible tells me so. You don't have to live in fear of tomorrow. You can rest your soul in him who is victorious and who will finally and ultimately defeat the enemy and deliver us and we rest in him. We hold on to him knowing he's holding on to us. And so we see as a son of man, Jesus ultimately will crush the enemy. Number two, as a son of man, Jesus will ultimately complete the destiny of man. He is completing your destiny. Let's read verses 13 and 14 again. It's so important. This messianic passage points to Jesus. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And so, so listen, they're in heaven, they're in this courtroom, okay? And it says, behold, I saw from the clouds of heaven, there came one. So out of clouds coming up to heaven, there's this one who says he's like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. And so this man, this, this person comes up on the clouds, approaches the throne, and he's there with the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so he's right there next to, right with the king, with the Ancient Days, with God himself on this throne. And it says, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. 
He is given this authority. And it says, in all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And it says the end that his kingdom shall not be destroyed. It's an everlasting dominion. And so who is this son of man who is, who is coming up on the clouds? By the way, who travels on the clouds? Only God does that. Read Psalm 68. Read Isaiah 19. It says that God comes on the clouds. So when you see here, this person coming on the clouds, that should make you think, oh, 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 he's talking about God. But wait, 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 but God is on his throne. So this other person is coming on the clouds, and he receives worship from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And he's right there on the throne, and he's given authority and a kingdom that will never end. So Daniel must have been a little confused. Like, who is this son of man? He clearly is human, but he clearly is divine. He's fully human, and he's fully God. And Psalm 8 asks the question. It says, in light of how glorious God is in his strength as a creator and his majesty, Psalm 8 asks, what is man? that you are mindful of him. And the son of man, there's that question, the son of man that you care for him. And God loves humans. God loves people. But let's make it more personal. God loves you. He loves you. Sometimes we talked about this last week, it, in light of our sin, we, we can sometimes think that, well, God can't love me, but God's love is not like human love. He treasures you. He made you in his image, and he made you for himself. This phrase, son of man, used in Psalm 8, is also used in the prophet Ezekiel. If you read Ezekiel, you will see repeated over and over, God refers to his prophet as a son of man. And so from God's perspective, he is giving Ezekiel this tremendous compliment. Because to be a man, to be a human, is to be deeply loved by God. To be the crown jewel of his creation. And to be given the eternal purpose of reflecting his glory as his image bearer. Ephesians chapter 1 is so profound. It says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world in love. You hear that? It says he chose us before the world was created. He chose us in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. In love. God loved you before you existed. You existed in his mind. He thought of you and he already loved you. And then he created you. To then love you. You pushed him away. So he sent his son to die for you. He sent his spirit. He opened your eyes. Resurrected you spiritually. You responded with 
faith and repentance. And then you love him back, but he's been loving you before there was time. So God's love for you is eternal. No beginning and no end. And so God, in his unconditional election, he chose you not because you deserved it. His unconditional election happened because of his unconditional love. That's why he chose you, because he loves you. And God loves you because he loves you. And so we experience the most glorious love ever possibly conceived, an eternal love with no beginning and no end. And it's in this love that God has given us as his image bearers a glorious destiny. Think back to creation when God made Adam. He gave him, if you think about it, a three-part office. God gave Adam the office of prophet because he was to share God's word. Because who got God's word first? Adam. Before there was Eve, God gave Adam his word. And so Adam was to teach his wife and future children and, and future grandchildren and great, great, and great, 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 great grandchildren. And the goal was to keep sharing God's word with all people. And then he was, he was also a priest, so prophet, but also a priest. Because as a priest, he was the one to lead all the families of the world to worship God. He was to be the king because he was given dominion over the whole earth, not just Garden of Eden, the whole earth. And so he was given dominion, so he was told to be a prophet and a priest and a king who would then reflect the glory of God so that the whole world would be covered by people that rejoice in knowing God, that would praise God for his goodness. And so that was his task. That was his destiny to cover the world with the, the joy of knowing God, to reflect the glory of God, to be an image bearer so that the whole world, every tribe, nation, and tongue would see and then savor the glory of God. That is the destiny of man. That is the purpose of man. We exist to glorify God by enjoying him forever. But the problem is the essence of humanity is corrupted. We are broken. Why? Because Adam failed. So we have inherited his sinful nature he rebelled against God. He lost his taste for God. He didn't want God. He wanted what the serpent offered. And so now we have that same nature. We left to ourselves, align ourselves with the serpent rather than with the seed of God, the son of man. We choose to align ourselves with the serpent. It's our nature. It's bent. It's crooked. It's corrupted. And so we have inherited that nature. So when you read here, he's calling Jesus the son of man. Son of is a very important phrase. In the Bible, in ancient Hebrew, the, word, the phrase son of refers to having the characteristics of. And so when you see, for example, two of Jesus' friends, James and John, two disciples, they're called sons of thunder because they had thunder-like intense personalities. 
So to be a son of means you have all of the qualities of. So where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus has all of the qualities of true humanity. And so the threefold office of Adam, Jesus has it. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. But whereas Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He faced the same serpent that Adam faced. But Adam faced the serpent in a plush, comfortable garden. Jesus faced him in the desert and hungry after eating for 40 days. And yet Jesus faced him and he upheld the word of God. He obeyed fully. He did battle and he defeated the serpent. And then he went to the cross in obedience and broke the power of sin and defeated the enemy. So Daniel's prophecy here is saying that Jesus went up on the clouds of heaven. We, we think of him coming down, and he will one day come down. But when did Jesus go up in the clouds? You remember that? After he resurrected. He died, resurrected, spent 40 days with disciples, and then he ascended. And with the clouds up to heaven. And so Daniel 7 is describing the time that Jesus was ascending. He's emphasizing something here by talking about coming up with the clouds. He's talking about the victory that Jesus had over the beast. He's describing his work on the cross, how he was our sacrifice. So that we can then trust him and then receive a new heart with new desires so that we now hate the beast and we now love the king and we now hate our sin and we want more of God's glory in our lives. We want it to be revealed and displayed. We have a whole new nature, radically changed. This is the work of God. This is not the work of man. Jesus is fully God, yet fully human. As the son of man, he is accomplishing the destiny of humanity as being made in the image of God. And so Jesus, where Adam failed, Jesus is expanding the borders of the garden. Which is why verse 14 says, all peoples, all nations, all languages are worshiping the son of man. He's expanding the borders of the Garden of Eden so it covers the whole world. And it's going to happen one day when we are resurrected and everyone on the new earth is going to praise Jesus. But it's already happening right now. We have a foretaste. We're in this room. We have people of many different tribes and nations and tongues that are worshiping the Lamb, Son of Man. And so already we have a taste of what he is doing. So here's a question for you. Well, how does this really impact me today? You have a destiny. Your purpose, ultimately, overarching, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But within that, you have a particular, unique way that you're accomplishing that in your life. So God is calling you to a particular purpose. He is working in your heart, and he's giving you desires so that he wants to work through you, and God wants you to see how he wants to work through you. He has made you unique. 
in a particular way for a particular purpose to make Jesus known, to reflect his glory. You have talents and abilities, gifts. Are you using them? Maybe you're, you're trying to be someone that you're not. God hasn't made you in that way. He's made you a different way, but you don't like how God's made you. Well, repent and praise him for how he's made you and use who you are to accomplish this destiny that he has for you. I was talking to two brothers just this week. I love them both, and we're talking about India because last week I mentioned going to India, and, and one of them says, I've been to India, and I'm never going back. He's like, I am not going. If you want to go there, you go there. And I said, well, you don't have to go to India. I said, but where are your passions? What are you excited about? And it just blessed me. He said, well, the labor camps. I might not really feel India, but, man, my heart beats fast. Right here in Abu Dhabi to go and make Jesus known among the poor and oftentimes abused in the labor camps. He's like, man, and I want to go to South America. And this guy doesn't speak Spanish, by the way. And he says, I want to go to South America, and, and I want to go there. I just have this sense of calling and purpose to go do that. And I said, well, don't go to India. God's calling you to South America or to labor camps. What's God calling you to? What does your heart beat fast for? Because if you have the spirit, then it should be fast for Jesus. Accomplish your destiny. You're a human. You have a purpose. You exist to reflect the glory of God. We have to stop focusing on what's not perfect in our lives and focus on Jesus. So as we wrap up, number three, as a son of man, Jesus will ultimately consummate his kingdom. He is going to crush the enemy. He's going to complete our destiny. He makes this possible for us. And lastly, he's going to establish, consummate, complete his kingdom. And you see this at the very end. We, we read in, in verse 14 that he has an everlasting dominion. You see it also in verse 26 and 27. At, at the very end of this vision, verse 27, he says, And the kingdom and the dominion, and the greatness of his kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Do you hear that? The kingdom is given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. And so you are a saint of the Most High. You are declared holy before God, set apart for him, to serve him, to reflect him. And so in this consummated, one day completed kingdom, until that day comes, we live to expand the borders of his kingdom. And so your daily work, you should see it as kingdom work. And so mothers and fathers, when you teach your children about Jesus, that's kingdom work. Employee when you work hard with a good work ethic, with a good attitude in a toxic environment. That's kingdom work. Husbands, when you treasure your wives, when you listen to them, and when your wives know that you truly value them, 
because of how you talk and listen to them and the way you engage with your wife. That is kingdom work. Wives, when you encourage your husbands and don't belittle them and you honor them, that is kingdom work. Disciple of Jesus today here in this room, when you're so satisfied in Jesus and then out of the overflow, you were moved to walk in obedience and reach out to those that are far from God, that's kingdom work. It's all of it. Your whole life is, is designed to be for the kingdom of Christ. And this is all possible, this, this amazing, eternal, this soul-satisfying purpose is possible because the Son of Man came, fully human, fully God. And he came to crush the enemy, to complete our destiny, and to consummate his kingdom that we're a part of. This is who Jesus is, son of man. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. What a sweet name. Jesus. There's no name that's more wonderful than Jesus. Savior. Friend. First love. Will you pray with me? Father, we adore you, we worship you. We adore you for who you are and what you have done. We know that we are broken and sinful and just needy, and you are eternal and glorious and our Savior, and we worship you alone, for you alone are worthy. We praise you, Jesus, the Son of Man, who you came. You came for us. And your victory is our victory. So give us the strength through your spirit to walk in victory today, to grow, to reach others, to live a life of purpose. We lay our lives at your feet, and we trust you with our lives and our eternity, for you are trustworthy and faithful. And we just pray for your glory, Jesus.